All right, welcome to MBA's Unplugged. I'm your host, John Ford. We have a very special episode today. We do not have just any old first year today. We have the incoming president of the class of 2023, Olivia Glick. Olivia, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Uh, do you recognize that theme song, by the way, or is this just from a different generation of, of movie and TV watchers? I hate to say it, but I do not. I think for different generations. <laughs> that is the West Wing. Oh, of course, of the, course. The, okay, my, yep. <laughs> the much loved and also much hated Aaron Sorkin drama <laughs> from the early 2000s, mostly. Mm. All right, so I'm, you are, uh, unlike Jed Bartlett, you are a real president in real life, uh, not of the United States, but something much better and probably slightly less work, not much less work. Uh, you are the president of the class of 2023. When do you actually take office? So I'm actually already in office. I started officially when we got back from spring break. Excellent. So you got, you got to enjoy yourself over spring break and then never again for the next year, right? That's the deal? Never again. And uh, the board will tell you, I actually had a starting meeting before spring break to get to kind of get prepared. Well, there you go. They got to do the transition, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So before all that, let's start where we always start. Where are you from? I am from San Francisco, California. Where in San Francisco? I grew up uh, in this neighborhood called Seacliff, um, right in the city. Um, actually, fun fact, Mark Benioff lives very close to me in Jack Dorsey. So right where all the tech stuff is happening. <laughs> and we were, we were actually joking that your, your parents bought the house in the 70s. So they yeah. are, they are <laughs> not necessarily tech billionaires. They're like regular people who bought a house in the 70s in San Francisco, and now it's worth $72 million probably. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah, my parents are very normal, doctor and an artist. There's no tech in the family, so. <laughs> well, that's pretty special. That's more than normal. That's pretty special, a doctor and an artist. But uh, I, I just didn't want to leave the impression that like, oh yeah, this is somebody who just comes from a ton of money and had an easy time. Probably a lot of yeah, yeah. would be like that. <laughs> uh, it, it's, a, it's a middle class upbringing. So where'd you go to high school? Did you go to high school in San Francisco? No, I actually went to high school across the bridge in Marin County. Um, yeah, which I loved. I think it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. It is. And they make sure they make sure to keep it that way. Because it's one of the, our real estate friends in the class will tell you it's one of the hardest places to build anything, which is why it's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, they're not wrong. But there's so many hikes and it just you cannot get anywhere where there's so much great nature and, uh, but also great food, great people. Isn't that I where love it. George Lucas lives? Isn't his ranch in Marin County? Um, you know what, you might be right. I'm gonna Google that right now because I wanna make sure this is right since we're being reported. Um, yeah, it is, it's in Nicasio. So it's kind of West Marin, but uh, yeah, that's right where he lives. Um, and you did a semester in New York City, right? So most of your high school was in Marin County, which is mm -hmm. 
as most people know, it's a, a little bit exurban, it's rolling hills and nice little neighborhoods. And then you did a semester in the exact opposite, which is the densest city in the United States, New York. <laughs> it's true. Um, I did end up going to New York for a semester. I, I will say this, New York feels very much part of uh, my upbringing. My, my parents met in New York. Uh, we would go there multiple times a year. I went to camp upstate New York. So it, it did not feel strange to do a semester in New York with this program, but definitely now that I think about it, it was definitely a little more unique at the time. So what was this program and what were you doing when you were in New York? So the program was, um, is at this boarding school called Masters and the actual program itself was called City Term. And it was all about experiential learning. So it, it took maybe 30 different high school kids from across the country. And the whole premise was, can we learn the literature, the history, the social studies of New York by reading in the classroom for one day and then going to New York City the next and seeing the monuments, going to the Brooklyn Bridge, talking to street vendors, just um, how, do you, how do you learn through an experiential lens? Um, it was, it was definitely a very formative time because it was probably the one of the longest times I'd been away from home. And uh, you're living with these 30 kids around the country that are just in, some of the smartest kids in the country, I felt like, and I was just being challenged every day. And it also the schoolwork was intense because it was six days a week. Um, but I, I loved it so much. Any experiences in particular stand out, things you went to do or see? Um, that's a good question. I, I can't think of a specific memory, but I will say, I remember being, we were juniors. We must've been 16 and in, in high school. And, um, it's funny because they let the kids on Saturdays kind of wander off. And we would, it, it, can, if you can imagine these 16 year olds who kind of know New York, but not necessarily. And they're running all around to make an 11 PM train back to central station. Um, and I, I felt just the most independent I'd ever had in my, in my life at that, at, at that moment, so. Because <laughs> you get to be away from the parents, you get to be in a cool, fun city on the other side of the country, and you get to just do interesting stuff all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and the goal was just, you know, you got to keep learning. I, I think the it was so immersive that everyone took it seriously, which I think I really appreciated. And it just, it made the experience that much better. And then it was off to Wesleyan for college, right? Yep, Wesleyan University in Connecticut. So what was that experience like? It was, it was great. I, I loved Wesleyan. Um, I had a bit of a, of a rocky start at first. I definitely hated the first semester, but I think that comes with every new trans, transition. Um, and then I just fell in love with it. I think it definitely is one of the most liberal places um, or liberal colleges. Uh, every day someone's protesting and um, there is a lot of debates, but I think it also is one filled with like some of the smartest people I know. And uh, it, it's pushed me a lot into my own political identity and just, and just my whole holistic identity as well. What did you major in? Uh, funny enough, I majored in government um, known as political science in every other college, but Wesleyan calls it government. They got to be special. <laughs> exactly. That's the Wesleyan way. We can't be like everybody else. We got to call it government. <laughs> um, which is actually probably a better name, to be honest. 
So let's talk about, because this is an important part of your story and an important part of your life, I know, finding your political identity and really coming into yourself in that area in college. Talk to me a little more about that and how that happened. Yeah, so I think I grew up in San Francisco and also a little liberal enclave, but I felt like what I had thought was what everyone had thought in the country. And I felt so sheltered. And I remember someone, I remember listening to a senior speech in high school and someone had said in a senior speech, because everyone in, your, in our high school had to give a speech. And I remember one of the speeches someone had talked about, we're so open-minded that we're closed-minded. And so that was kind of the mindset I took to, to Wesleyan because I thought, okay, this will also be this little liberal enclave. What can I do to both further develop my own thoughts, but also really understand what do I truly believe and what am I just being told? Um, and, and so that's making me believe it. Um, and I would say that I, I found that the conversations I had both in and outside the classroom were so constantly pushing me to rethink everything I previously thought. It was a complete paradigm shift. I'll put it this way. It, we had, obviously the spectrum was on one end of the liberal, of the liberal side, but also people were not afraid to talk to talk in the more conservative or Republican perspective. And I really appreciated that because it actually helped me kind of develop my own understanding. Okay, here's what I actually think and what I think is just and right. And I, it kind of inspired me to, to live this more, to live a life that I truly believe in the mission um, and to do work and to help a community uh, because of these values that I developed at Wesleyan. And you got involved a little bit at Wesleyan and in doing things like organizing debate watch parties during campaigns <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, I, I, so I graduated in 2016. So um, that's when, um, that was, I, I remember I organized like a democratic debate. Um, and that was when obviously Donald Trump was running at the same time. But at, the, at that time, so this was like fall of 2015, no one really took him seriously as a candidate. And I, we were, it was Hillary Clinton was running, Bernie Sanders was running. Um, and it was funny because actually that was a really big divide on campus was the Hillary versus Bernie divide. That, that was kind of like the hot, that's where the political divides took you. Um, so I which, organized- which, which side of the divide were you on? You don't have to say, but I'm very interested in which side you were on. I'm assuming so, you were on- either the Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton campaigns, unless you were one of the, uh, the super secret O'Malley supporters. Out there. No, <laughs> that's a great call. I was not, I was, um, I will say this. I love Bernie Sanders and I really believe in, uh, I, I very much believe in what he, his mission. Uh, but I also, I, I'm a very big Hillary Clinton fan, which I, it actually is like a controversial thing to say, I feel like, which I, I, I don't think it should be, but it is. I really respect her as a leader. I think she's one of the smartest people. And um, I definitely, I feel like a lot of the leadership she exudes, I also try to exude. Um, but I, it's, that's no, I know there's like some diehard Bernie fans and I get it. I would say, I'll say this at the time, particularly the Bernie bro culture was big and there was a lot of that at school and that really was a detractor for me. Um, mm. But again, I, I still think Bernie, he's great. Yeah. I re, I, um, and a lot of my beliefs align with his own, but it, to me, it also came down with leadership and I, I just really respect Hillary Clinton as a leader so much, so. I wish it hadn't gotten so bitter because I think what you just said is the normal 
position of most Democrats, which is I like them both. I like one a little better. Yeah. But the super activist people turned everything into this like personal referendum on them and their friends. And it, it just got kind of out of hand. I agree. I, I've always been someone who I'm not so extreme. I, I don't necessarily think you can't like one and not the other, which is what you're saying. I think a lot of people have this mutually exclusive mindset and that really bothers me. I, I, I really believe that politics and I guess just community building and, and yeah, just this type of way of thinking, how, how do you organize people? You, there isn't necessarily a right or wrong answer. And so you can't be so dismissive just because you, someone else is your favorite doesn't mean uh, the other candidate is, is a bad candidate or you disagree with them. It just means there's certain other factors that you uh, resonate with more. Absolutely. And you actually volunteered on some campaigns after graduating from college, right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I, so I moved to New York after I graduated from school and I, I just was really, really, I think there's some, there's something so powerful through local elections. I think that's ultimately where a lot of people's lives are changed at the local level. And so um, after I graduated, um, I started canvassing. Um, I went to, I remember going to Pennsylvania and canvassing for Hillary Clinton during 2016. But even later on, um, after that election, I did a lot, a lot of stuff in the midterms in 2018. I found this organization called The Arena, which was, um, it was like this group of young people that created it right up in 2017. And it was, how do you organize and get people excited for these smaller local elections? And so I, I helped fundraise for um, a midterm during Octo in October for that, for the midterm 2018 elections. And I also organized um, a couple campusing uh, retreats. So uh, someone from my school from Wesleyan, he was running for office in Staten Island, Max Rose, which actually my beliefs aren't necessarily in line with his, but I, that, that Staten Island is so important for Democrats to win because it, it tends to be very Republican. And so he was running. And so I kind of organized my friends to go out uh, to go help canvas for him for a couple of times. Um, and then kind of throughout the years, I've um, volunteered at different campaigns I feel really passionate about. And just before I left for business school, I was volunteering for my, my friend, Chris, Chris Marte, who just won um, his city council seat for lower Manhattan, which I'm so excited about. So the, the New York city council is a, this is a big deal race for people who maybe are not that familiar with local politics. They hear city council and they think like guys in a small town going to basketball gyms and shaking hands of the people who come to the PTA meetings. Like New York City Council races are huge, expensive races with big staffs. Tell people a little bit about what is involved in running for a big city council seat. Well, I'll say tell you from the perspective of, of a friend, supporter, and volunteer of one of my good friends. I don't know if I can give you the best perspective on everything that it takes, but I will say, I think there is this illusion that it's it's these kind of big money um, people with incredibly influential ties to Wall Street or or the government already. And something that I was so proud of my friend Chris was that he really is man of the people. He's been organizing um, for years now, and he is a New York native. He was running against overdevelopment in Chinatown, 
he was running against, uh, they were building this new jail. They're, new York is trying to build this giant jail in Chinatown, which would um, be horrible for, uh, I mean, it would just be horrible for the community. There also was some issues with blocking um, sunlight for, for people, which is like in, in New York City, everyone need, needs their sunlight. They're already so cramped together. And so what I loved about him was that he was kind of a typical normal city council guy. He, he was running really to, re to represent uh, his, his community. I remember walking around the street with him one day and uh, help, just helping him as he was canvassing for himself. And um, random people on the street were screaming his name and saying hi to him. And I was like, wow, he, he really, like this community, he has a hold on this community in a way that I've never seen before. Yeah, that's interesting. And my, it gives me a chance to, to tell a story that I love to tell that I think explains a lot of misimpressions that people have about which elections matter and what jobs in government matter. But do you know who Hilda Solis is? I don't. Who is that? So Hilda Solis was Barack Obama's labor secretary. She was a member of the House, represented a district in LA County, and was chosen for labor secretary. And after about a year, she resigned as labor secretary so that she could go back to LA and run for the board of supervisors. And it's like, you are labor secretary of the US <laughs> government. Why would you run for the board of supervisors? And it's because some of these local offices, especially in big cities, are unbelievably powerful jobs. Mm -hmm. The LA County Board of Supervisors, you run a giant pot of money. You run the sheriff's department. You run the district attorney's office. You run the county hospitals. It is a huge deal to be on an LA Board of Supervisors seat. You know, members of Congress are nothing compared to an LA supervisor. And some of these big city council races end up being a huge deal. And people don't even know who these people are, but it's, you know, you go to any major city in America and you can feel the impact that these people make or don't make. Sometimes you, you feel it when the neighborhoods look great and everything is going really well. And sometimes you feel it when you're driving your rental car down a street in Philadelphia and it's rattling from pothole to pothole and you feel it in a different way, what the local government is doing or not doing. But these jobs are, you're right, they're so, so important and they don't get the attention that they really deserve in, in part because local media is dying away. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, 100%. That's a very uh, inspiring story. I think we all should kind of lead with that humility. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So after working on some campaigns, you thought maybe you wanted to go into politics, maybe run for office someday. What were your <laughs> thoughts on that at this point in your life? So I was volunteering, but that wasn't my, my full-time job was in retail, but there was a moment where I was really trying to work on a campaign and I was, I never, I don't ever want to run for office. That is, I have no interest in that, but I, I had a dream of kind of being behind the scenes, being the campaign manager, uh, you know, run the shots. So uh, for a while I was actively looking for campaign roles and I even did this whole training in Charleston to about campaigning. Um, and I ended up getting a, I got a job offer to work on a campaign, Siraj Patel. Um, he was running for um, the house seat that represented Upper East Side and, and a little bit of Brooklyn and the East Side of Manhattan. 
Uh, and it, it was, it, I got the job offer right in February, 2020. And I remember I was agonizing over the decision. And I think in hindsight, I did not take the role. And in hindsight, it worked well because of the pandemic, but um, that was not an easy decision for me to make, which is, should I take it, leave my, leave my comfy job, not comfy, but stable job at Macy's um, or continue my role at Macy's and look for other opportunities. So speaking of Macy's, your, your work at Macy's was like a very direct window into the, the life cycle of the American retail industry in the last few years. Talk a little bit about what you did at Macy's and what Macy's was trying to do to adapt to uh, the changes in the retail landscape in 2019 and 20. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I was a buyer at Macy's and did some financial planning, but kind of the latter end of my tenure there, I worked on this team called the brand experience team. And it basically was an innovation team at the company. And we were building this new store and brand. Um, we were trying to you know, re-engage the customer and elevate the Macy's brand. I don't know if you've been in a Macy's recently, but um, I'm sure you've noticed every time you walk into one, there's a 25% sale sign or a 40% off. And uh, something, it may not be a surprise to you, but the customer will not buy anything unless it's on sale. So mm. a, <laughs> they, Macy's had trained their customers that you need, they need to be at least 25%, but usually higher for them to even look at the shirt. So what the store that we were building was how the whole premise was, how do we get the customer excited about what we're doing? How do we reimagine the customer experience, the merchandising experience? Um, what vendors are we bringing in? How do we engage with the local customer? so that they want to buy something and, and be part of the Macy's brand, um, not simply because something is for sale. That's interesting. I mean, the most famous retailer for their like outrageous, it's constantly on sale is probably Joseph Bank, right? Mm. Is, this, is this sad? I don't know what that is. Oh no, Joseph, maybe you don't see the TV ads, but they used to run these TV ads and it was constant, come to Joseph Bank and buy <laughs> one suit and get two suits for free. It was like the most outlandish sounding deals, but it was literally yeah. always, it was always on, on that sale. Like it yeah. was always buy one, get two free pretty much. And if it wasn't, wait a week and it'll be buy one, get two free. And it's like, you're just charging me for three suits and saying that this is the price of one. What are we doing here? I know it's all, it's all psychology. It's all mind games. I mean, Macy's did some, I won't, this isn't recorded, but I will say as a financial planner, I got a look into some of their accounting tricks so that they could still be profitable while still being on sale. And um, they definitely play some games. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Well, you, you've probably learned, in, who did you have for accounting? Did you have Solomon? Mm-hmm. Mark Solomon. So you probably got to see that they aren't the only ones playing some games and moving stuff around. Oh yeah. I mean, if you're not, if you're not playing it, then you're going, you're losing, but, uh, it, it was, I, I coming in from Wesleyan where I, you know, it's very anti-capitalism, uh, stick it to the man. And then I go straight into Macy's, this giant corporation started as a financial planner and it's was a rude awakening to what, what was going on there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a great book called lights out about general electric that focuses a lot of, on their accounting practices and how it kind of burned them in the end. Cause they were basically eating their seed corn to show profits from quarter to quarter. John, I'm impressed by your, uh, 
these kind of references that you're pulling out. I'm, I honestly, I'm very impressed. Well, thank you. I, I, I had two years of pandemic to read a lot of books and not go outside. So I've, I've got a lot of references, I guess. It's showing. I got out of the pandemic was a lot of nerdy references. Like, let me tell you the story of Hilda Solis and then recommend a book about General Electric. Um, <laughs> all right. So you're working at Macy's and you're doing, it's like a branded store was the idea that they came up with, right? Kind of. It was, it, think of it as like a specialized boutique. So the cool things that we did was we focused not on New York City or any of these major metropolitan areas. We actually focused on the suburbs of mid-city. So think uh, Dallas, Atlanta, um, I guess DC is a huge city, but the, uh, the suburb of DC. And what we were trying to do was the customer we were going after was, um, it, we called it like the suburban mom who thought she was going out in the city, but really was just going out to drink with her friends, the local, the local strip mall. But you know, they have money. They want us, they want to, they want to look nice, but they're staying in the suburbs. They're not going into the city. And um, we worked a lot with local vendors to, so the first store was in Texas. So obviously we worked with a ton of, there's a, there's a ton of vendors down there that you can work with. Um, and Texas is really proud of being from Texas. And we were specifically working in the suburb uh, off of Dallas called South Lake. And South Lake college or high school football is huge there. So the team, you know, would go to their football games and we ended up kind of making an assortment, a personalized assortment, a product that was there was green dragons, which is their mascot. And we did all these things to kind of to localize the assortment for South Lake. And at the same time, we brought in current Macy's merchandise that was currently being sold at other department stores, um, but didn't say it was on sale. And we we merchandised all these things together. And so it made it made everything look more elevated more personalized. It was very engaged with the community. It, I thought it was, it was, it was fun because it was very outside the box from the usual Macy's system of running their business. And so was this a, a response to e-commerce to try to make the brick and mortar part of the business more relevant? Yeah, exactly. It was, it, it was that. And, and just how do you make someone excited in a business that felt there was no excitement in, in a 25% off sale sign? Yeah. yeah. So you opened the store when? So the proto the first prototype store opens in February 2020. Oh, what happened after that? <laughs> um, not not much. Any, Honestly, anything, nothing. anything important? <laughs> yeah. So it you can say kind of the worst time to open a store like that. Um, so by March 2020, we obviously had to shut down the store. And I, I remember because it was the first one was in Texas, their actual their COVID laws were more lax than what ours were in New York. And so there was a couple of weeks in April. Well, when we were furloughed where I thought, oh, like we'll, we'll, we'll be up and running. So this will be no problem. But uh, by that summer, my entire team had been laid off. So <laughs> I'm a COVID casualty, I would say. But you got an incredible window into the life and status of the retail industry today. I mean, it was literally, you lived through the life cycle of retail over the last 10 years right there in that one job. <laughs> exactly. I've lived a lifetime. <laughs> and then you moved to Third Love. What is Third Love? So actually before Third Love, um, I was working, well, volunteering full time, but it, it really was working 50 hours, 60 hours a week 
at this organization called the COVID Foundation, and I was the director of supply and distribution there. Um, and we were helping deliver PPE to underserved communities. I, I just in that I just thought I know a lot about supply chain. I worked in a buying function. I can help out this community while I'm looking for my next step. Um, and so I did that for the full for all of fall, and that was extremely rewarding. And again, that was about working with the New York community. We basically we mostly worked with uh, sending PPE to communities uh, in New York. So think like prisoners at Rikers Island or low-income families in public housing, which I, I, that was one of the most stressful moments of my life, but I also loved it. And then after that, um, I started working at Third Love uh, for about six months as a consultant on their product development team. Excellent. All right. So I got to hype the Vegas trip now because the Vegas trip is coming up. This episode is going to air on April 18th. Uh, so we will be just 11 days away. It will be at that point too late to sign up for the blocker rooms at Harrah's, but there are, as you know, many other very nice hotels on the Vegas Strip that you can stay at. We're going to have many fun activities. We have a uh, Red Rock Canyon hike. We've got a poker tournament, an NFL draft watch party. Going to go to Sky Bar at Mandalay. I'm going to go to the Neon Museum, uh, which is a museum where they have all the old signs from the hotels that have been torn down, like the Sahara sign and the Stardust sign and you go there at night and they light them all up and it's really neat. So it's going to be a lot of a lot of fun stuff, a variety of things, something for everybody in Vegas because this is now not just gambling and drinking and partying. It's also it's like Robert De Niro says in Casino. It's Disneyland now. Anybody can go there and find something that they like. Uh, so come on out there and enjoy one last ride uh, with your classmates before graduation. All right, Olivia. We're going to do some fun questions. We are not going to do the usual fun questions because we're going to do a special set of presidential questions just for you. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Who is your favorite fictional president? Ooh. Um, Selena Meyer from Veep. Excellent. Explain to people why Veep is the truth about politics and not House of Cards. Because I think it shows how much people are just making it up as they go and 100 100 <laughs> uh yeah i think i think it just it beep is one of the funniest shows i think that's ever been made um yeah I'll, yeah that's it's one of the funniest shows ever made and i think part of it is that it's so rooted in truth and the, the best parts is when you see these jokes that they've made on the show that actually translate it, that's happened in real life. I, I can't give you an example right now because I'm blanking, but uh, my one recommendation to everyone listening to this is go watch a beep. It's, it's one that it's one of the funniest shows. It also is so rooted in reality in a way that makes you question so much about our government and just how things are run. <laughs> it, it, it's the perfect show. And I played that theme from the West wing. And the West Wing is everybody is so smart and they mean so well and they're doing good for the world. And House of Cards is everyone is bad and they have these devious schemes that they carry through to perfect execution. It's like, no, it's not like that at all. What happens is you wake up at 5.45 in the morning and you spend your entire day in a figurative washing machine getting spun around <laughs> because of one bad tweet that somebody sent. Like, and then you go to bed at 12.30 in the morning and you get up the next day and do it all over again. Like that's actually what it's like. Exactly. You get it. Um, all right. Favorite real president? Um, Obama. All right. Also feels easy. Yeah. That was an easy one for you. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite law? Just any law. 
Pretty but one long. that you happen to like in particular. Oof, that is specific. Um, it's one of those questions that an hour from now you'll be like, now I can think of 12 excellent laws I should have said. But it's such a, it, it is kind of a gotcha question a little bit. And you're like, what? that is a gotcha I have no question. Idea. Do you have a favorite law? Is that, an, is that what most people have on their back pocket? I don't think anybody has it. That's why it's a fun question. Is it leaves it the, is. leaves the interviewee totally flat footed, <laughs> but it opens That's, the door to fun and interesting answers. Um, I wish I knew more laws to give you a favorite. Um, I can I can I think about it for a little bit and and get back to you. No, it's a lightning round. You got to answer. Okay, I. Uh, okay. Olivia's probably Googling good laws right now. She's um, like, Google I I, some good laws. What are some good laws? <laughs> I'm Googling some, I close, I said funny laws, but thank you. Thank you for blowing up my spot. <laughs> I appreciate that. Oh. Hmm. There are some stupid laws. I'll put it this way. I don't know if they're my favorite. All right, lay it on. But they're okay. So there's a law in Arkansas. Did you know this? That or no, in Arizona. Shout out to David McGarry if he listens to this. Arizona, you're not allowed to spit on the sidewalk. Is that so stupid? You can't do that um, in Singapore either. Oh, okay. It sounds like you know some some random laws. <laughs> Well, because I've, I've been to Singapore and you stand in the airport and you go through customs and there's there's signs that say, do not spit on the sidewalk right below the sign that says uh, drug traffickers will be put to death. Whoa, they they really, they're talking yeah. business. <laughs> yeah, we're not messing around here. <laughs> not at all. Front. There's a trash can over there. Toss it in there before you go through customs. Dang, all right. Well, good to know. Next time I go to Singapore, I'll, I'll be careful. Um, in Georgia, there's another law, no eating fried chicken with a fork, which again, it's like, it's not hilarious, but it's appropriate given the state. A law that I'm sure is regularly violated. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I, it is at each I, restaurant. I would like to imagine that that is like Chick-fil-A protectionism because the easiest way to eat fried chicken without a fork is to just put it in a sandwich. <laughs> That's true. Or with your fingers, your hand. Okay, I'll share one last law and then All right. I so in Indiana, so pi, the math, the mathematical number pi is actually equal to 3.2. I know. Makes you want to cry, right? My face is in my hands right now. I wish that this was a visual <laughs> medium so people could see me. <laughs> The fact yeah. that Indiana believes that they can change the number pi by passing a law explains so very much about the state of Indiana. I'm blaming Pete Buttigieg on that one. Yeah, we've got to blame somebody. <laughs> All right, so we, we don't have a favorite law, but we've got some pretty good ones. We've got some yeah. much, much beloved laws or, or much laughed at laws anyway. All right, do you have a yeah. favorite political scandal? Hmm. Favorite political scandal. 
I don't know if I have a favorite political scandal. I would say, hold on. I want to, let me double check my, my facts really quick. Oh. I will say this. So Huma, who was married to Anthony Weiner, didn't he show, he showed his Weiner, right? Yeah. He sent, he sent a photo to an underage girl. I don't love that because I'm a Huma fan, but I will say, I think she wrote a book, she got him back. And I think there's some poetic justice, I guess, that his last name is, the, is what honestly got him in trouble. There's, there's something there. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty good one. That's a, I, I know, that's but a pretty good one. yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind. Does that mean it's my favorite? I don't know, but it's the first one that comes to mind. It was honestly, it was an instant classic. <laughs> it's it, an instant it, classic. It took the country by storm. Um, and then his, it's, his interview, his interview answer, when somebody asked him about it, like, is this you? And he's like, I don't know. There's a lot of pictures of me. There's pictures, there's pictures of a lot of people. And it's like, so it's a, it's a yes. Then. Uh, exactly. Have you seen um, Parks and Recreation? Uh, I've seen some episodes. Yeah. They, there's a character on it that he's a congressperson and he continuously gets into these sex scandals. And it, it's kind of, it's kind of like Anthony Weiner just totally, he, he's a trope almost of yeah. this, this politician who, who sends this picture to an underage girl. And it's just like, come on, dude, do better. Like this, we all could have predicted this one coming. Was she underage or was she in college? She was pretty young one way or another. Maybe, maybe she was in college, but oh, I'll look Still it. not great. But, still not still, great I mean, for a married still not as, to be doing this. <laughs> I was going to say still not his wife. So yeah. Still not great. Um, all right. What is your least favorite state in the union? Whoa, that I'm is controversial. I'm not going to ask you your favorite. We're going to make you rank them from the bottom. And be careful not to pick a swing state. Might might jeopardize your reelection. That's true. I, I have to worry about that. Let me think. So I actually, this summer, I did a big road trip with my mom through the South, and I loved it. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, it is nice. I was so pleasantly surprised. You know, actually, you know where I loved was Arkansas, which I know is strange, but we went to Bentonville, which is okay. a lovely, love, lovely town. That's where Walmart is located. Yeah. But I'm trying to think. So I, I wanted to say one of those, but honestly, it, that's not true. I would say can be quite nice. It can be quite nice. I don't love. Oh, this is controversial. I went to school in Connecticut, but I don't love Connecticut. Maybe my least favorite. Okay. Now, now we're talking. Why Connecticut? I, because I find Connecticut's identity leans into these two stereotypes, which is white, waspy, preppy. You got the Greenwich culture, and then you also have a lot of rural towns. And I, there's such a divide between the two, and there's just... You, you take a tri- train ride through the state and it there's just, you're like, what is what is Connecticut trying to say? What are they doing? Why don't these two worlds talk to each other? I also feel like, you know, people, it's easy for people to kind of 
talk smack about New Jersey, for example, but I love New Jersey because they know their culture, they know their identity and they're true to it. And so I would never, I would never, uh, you know, criticize someone for that. But for Connecticut, I'm like, who, who's your identity? What, what do you lean into? What are you proud of? And I couldn't tell you what it is. And I went to school there for four years. Well, they lost a lot of their identity when the, the Hartford Whalers moved to North Carolina. That was a tough day. <laughs> That's now, true. Now what, is, now what do they have? A um, bunch of insurance companies. Is that? I? Yeah, I guess they just have insurance companies. Yeah. All right, and and farms. Pretty, they have a ton of farms. A ton of farms. Which people do not realize. No, no one would, no one would guess it, but it's, it's very, very rural in areas. All right. Last special presidential question. Which member of the faculty or administration do you wish you had veto power over? Whoa. You can't make them do stuff, but you can veto stuff. You got the veto pen over someone on the faculty or administration. I can't say that. Peter Fist wants to cold call you. Sorry, veto pen. No, I love Peter. I I love Peter Fist. Our whole class loves Peter Fist. Everybody loves him. He's great. Um, we had a class that we did have a class in our core. And I know you guys also had this professor in our core. I won't name names, but I feel like they were definitely a controversial member of the class. And I felt that they were pretty unwavering in, in some of what we needed from them. And I wish I'd veto power in some, I wish I'd veto power with them. But you're not going to say who it is. I think people can read between the lines. They will not okay. be teaching next. They will not be teaching next year in the core. So this is the opposite of the usual political quote for being off the record. In this case, the source is on the record. The quote itself is off the record. The I'm gonna. I'm gonna go ahead and guess that no one from the administration will be. I, maybe maybe some administration's listening right now. But I. I I kind of doubt it, right? <laughs> Let me just tell you, we just did the 100 days and we ribbed on the faculty pretty good. They have a pretty decent sense of humor. So as long as it's not like, I, I'm not going to make you name it, but I think it's funny that you're like, ah, I think everybody knows who it is and they probably do. I, I, I don't think this person will ever listen to it, but I think everyone knows. Yeah, there's a little wink, wink. I wish I had veto power with him. It's a boy, okay. I'll say that much, which is, okay. you know, 99% of this this uh, class and this whole school anyway so <laughs> all right so cheryl townsend is off the hook then or sarah townsend yeah. is off the hook sarah townsend yeah yeah i like sarah townsend um all right so let's talk about being president of mgsa uh let's start here what are the actual powers that the mgsa has and that the president has because i think we should start with you know, what the actual powers of the office are, because I think sometimes people bring complaints to people who are on MGSA and the folks on MGSA don't always have any authority to do anything about the things that are being complained about. It's really a complaint for the administration and then it gets brought to MGSA. So what are the actual powers that MGSA and the president have? Yeah, I think that's a great question too. I'm still figuring out I'm still figuring that one out, but I will say this. I see the role of MGSA and the president as kind of the, the, um, 
interlocker between the administration and the students. So I'm voicing any of the concern from the students to the administration. And I'm meeting with Dean Koo specifically hours every week, at least at, so far, it's been two to three hours per week, been in multiple meetings. And even what I've seen, how Emily's advocated for the class um, in certain meetings I've been in, I've, it's, I've been very impressed there. I think people don't necessarily realize how much we're pushing for student needs and interests um, to the administration and trying to gather evidence to, to prove that what we're saying isn't just a single-handed complaint, but uh, is a general sentiment in the class. And I, I think any, I do get a lot of the complaints come to me. A lot of people are, there's been certain events that have happened recently in the class and people come up to me and I say, look, I'm going to talk about this with, with Dean Koo, but I also need you to do me a favor. I want you to write an email or or talk to her too, because she needs to know that this isn't just me coming from one student. It, a lot of people are feeling this. And I think they really care about making sure the experience is better. But I think students don't realize how little they truly, they, they, their perception is totally different than how students think, think it is. I think they, they will, they're willing to change. They just need to hear it from the students. What are the biggest limits on your power? Well, I guess, uh, I mean, this is ultimately being on student government is a volunteer position. So I'm not, this is not my job. I'm not getting paid to do this work. I'm doing it because I truly am passionate and I'm doing it. So I think the limits there is that I can't actually force the school to do anything, but I can strongly, strongly tell them this, this is what students feel like. And if they don't, if this doesn't happen, though students can, there's repercussions students can do that can still be very negative for the school itself. Um, and so I can't force them, but I can show them. I think students also have a very strong, some very strong cards to play. And um, I think the administration does know that. I think they do want to uh, learn and, and get better. I think they know that the experience isn't perfect right now. And um, I do this because I love Marshall. I really do. This experience has been extremely formative for me, but it also, I love it because I think there's so many ways that we can be better and, and change. I think that that's a good thing. You always want to be in a place where you can continually, continuously grow and improve. Um, and I'm excited as I've gone to know the administration better. I'm excited that they really are open to hearing that feedback. It, it reminds me actually of a scene from the West Wing, which you were saying, where the president's assistant comes in and finds him working in the Oval Office. He says, what are you doing? And the president says, I'm doing what the president does mostly, ask people for things and then thank them for things. And that sounds like a lot of what, what you do is you ask people for things and then thank them for things. And people come to you and they say, this is bad. And you go to the people who can change it and you say, can you change this? And sometimes they do. And sometimes they sort of change it. And sometimes they don't. It's true. But I, I will say this. My role, I also see it as I, have, I, don't, I, don't, I don't say that to denigrate. I, I just think people need to understand leadership. A lot of it is about influence and persuasion. You know, you're a volunteer and you can't order the administration to do anything. You also can't order students to do anything, right? So like your ability to do anything relies on persuasion in both directions and getting people to line up behind an idea. A hundred percent. Can I have said it better myself? And, you know, I think a lot of the work I see myself as kind of overseeing, I have an incredible group of people that have all, that all stepped up to be on the VP, MGSA VP board. And 
Um, our board has done a lot of work to talk through ideas about, okay, what are tangible changes we want to see and what, what can actually we do as student leaders to make it happen. And it's not just advocating to the administration. It's um, creating, creating certain, uh, org how do I say this, systematic change through, I mean, I don't want to get too into it, but you know, we're working on these community, community norms with a strong focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, because we want to re rethink about what does the Marshall community mean for all of us. And um, we, we're, we're trying, how do you increase transparency between both student organizations and between the administration and students? I think we, we, we did this retreat a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I don't know if people can tell, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm serious. I love to get to work. And I did uh, these brainstorming activities with my team and we, we kind of had big thematic ideas we wanted to work on, not just, okay, what are, what's VP of community? What are ideas for VP of community? What are ideas for VP of academics? But also how do we integrate the first and second years together so that next year we're one giant, one community marshal? Um, how do we make sure that you know, the people that we are uh, recruiting for AVP positions and other leadership positions at Marshall are excited, they're diverse, they're talented? How do we kind of make sure that the range of people that we're targeting isn't just the same type, that we have a very diverse class of people that are excited to be part of MGSA and be part, and be part of leadership? Um, yeah. Do you have any budget authority for student government? So do you mean how I allocate funds or funds no, that MGSA you, has itself. Yeah, does MGSA, what kind of financing do you have to actually do things? Because that's always a constraint on anything you wanna do. People are always, you know, I know some of the people who are on MGSA in, in our year and I know what people asked them to, to do to make events better and it was often spend a bunch of money on really expensive stuff for the events. And it's like, <laughs> cool. I'll make a note of that. <laughs> um, so something we're trying to do is, and I'm really excited. So the VP of finance, Aaron, was on MGSA last year. And he, they work in GSG, which is a whole other part of, uh, a whole other part of gold, you could say, for the clubs to access. I think what we're trying to do is make sure the clubs make the process, A, extremely easy for them to request funding make it so that all they have to do is put their club name and their club event on the form and then they get funding right away. And two, uh, be very transparent in wh where exactly the money is and, wh and where they can pull it from. Because I think part of the issue last year was certain clubs had a ton of money because they paid high dues, they had a ton of money from the pandemic from the year prior, but a lot of clubs actually didn't have as many resources and didn't even know that they, there were other ways that they could pull in money. There also is a separate funding that MGSA has that starts our, for our board starts in July. Um, and that's when we can put it, do, and do some events or some programming as well. But for example, uh, I don't know if you saw, but the C4C MGSA prom was put on your calendar today for May 7th. Right. Right. And part of that was from MGSA funds. We're, we're helping donate some money to the prom because we think it's a great community event where people can get dressed up, celebrate the end of the year for a good cause and for charity. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. So what motivated you to run? Yeah, I think I, I was going back and forth about running for all of my fall semester. And I think 
what I ultimately decided was I'm in this community and I, I'm deeply passionate about it. And I also see that there's areas that can greatly improve. And, and I want I wanted to be at least in the room where I could in, influence some of those changes. Cause I, I felt really, really strongly about it. Um, overall, I, I ran on this idea of collaborative ambition, which isn't, that's not a new concept at, at Marshall. That's one of our core values, but I think that's been, I felt that was kind of lost last year or this year, last, last semester, because I felt like so many people and clubs and organizations worked in silo. And I felt like, okay, well, if you're MGSA, how can we make sure people are working together? How do we make sure the clubs are sharing knowledge and they're, they're, no one's reinventing the wheel every single time when they put on an event or they're helping first years with recruiting. So I saw MGSA as kind of this force to, to make sure everyone is collaborating together. And we're already starting to do that, um, which brings me to kind of my three big things I, I'm excited about, increased transparency, greater uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and then greater support from administration. So in terms of increased transparency, it's about, okay, can we have more MGSA office hours, which we're doing twice a week, every week now? Can we make sure our MGSA AVPs are part of the office meetings? Can we have presidents all hands, which is when all the, all the uh, club presidents come together once a month and share best practices and share some of the things that they're struggling with and try to figure out how can they collaborate on new events. And we actually have our first president's all hands meetings next Tuesday that I'm organizing. And I'm really excited about it. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm in my class to no longer be working in silo, but really lean on each other so that we can make more impactful events and that people aren't having to constantly rethink how to create a program or a, an event. And then uh, I was really passionate about increasing diversity and inclusion. What I mean by that is not just increasing the diversity in the class from a, a recruiting or leadership perspective, but also how do you make some of these conversations about com community norms and DEI initiatives more within um, everyday conversations and in the classroom as well? So how do we have curriculum and pieces that focus on these issues? Or how do we make uh, the next our next generation of leaders more comfortable talking about equity and inclusion. I feel like uh, there's been, I think, I love the class, but I also think we have a lot of learning to do about what makes you feel comfortable and, and how and how do you elevate certain voices and make sure that their, their experiences are celebrated and you don't, you don't assume the worst in people. Um, and then I will say just as a female in this program, it's, it's hard being it's hard being constantly in a room where it's mostly men or in groups where it's mostly men. And, and I'm an outspoken person. You know, I, I, I am, I'm okay hearing my own voice, but I, I just, it, it does wear on you a little bit. Some of the comments that have been made about uh, females in this program. Uh, and then lastly, was just kind of running on this idea of increased support. So how do you make the administration uh, understand some of the own stresses and pressure that MBA students feel and make the make the calendar and programming or catered around that. I, for me, last semester, I was recruiting for consulting and it was the hardest semester of my life. I had I had really bad uh, mental health issues, which I've never experienced before. And I was just very unhappy, very stressed. Uh, it, it, I was not in a good place and I felt like everyone else was was totally fine and, and doing amazing. And I, and I felt like the administration was constantly making me choose between, do I want to do well in my classes or do I want to just or do I need to do recruiting and I need to give up? I had it felt like I had to give up so many trade-offs that didn't really necessarily feel fair to me. And so I wanted, I that really is what pushed me in is to run is okay, I want to make sure the administration understands we need to make sure that there's more 
collaboration and uh, understanding of the full picture of what an MBA student is going through. But for example, I did three case competitions in November, and those were kind of integral to part of the recruiting process. But two of the three case competitions uh, also overlapped with uh, tests that were a quarter of my grade. So I, it, I, and how am I supposed to pick between the two? I, I had to do both. So I ended up not sleeping for those couple of weeks. And it's, that's also, a, that's the trade-off. People don't sleep, they, their, their mental health gets worn down. And so I felt really passionate about making sure I can make sure the support next year for first years is not, is, is not the same, that they feel like there's a community that's looking after them and, and helping them through this very stressful process. So you, um, you said that there were some comments made in some of the, the meetings that you were in. Can you talk a little bit more about that if you feel comfortable doing so? Yeah, I think I won't go into specifics, but I will say generally, and I know I'm not the only person, where comments have been made about, you know, wanting a female in your group because they need female representation, because they felt like they couldn't have all males. And that's very offensive to want to only want someone on a group because they're a girl and not because they can contribute with their own intellect or their experiences. Um, and I, and that's been made to me personally, but I also know it's been made to many other people in the program too. Uh, there's also been some comments that have been uh, critical of, of, of some women's experience or choices to have babies or just, they're not very accommodative to that experience. And that's, that's really hard. It, it's, that's, un, you should not punish someone for a choice that's so important. And um, I just think there's been, I think we can do better. We can, and it's not just, I want, I still want to say this. It's not just that being a female is hard, is hard in this program. It's, there's a lot of other identities that we need to acknowledge. There's only three black women in our program or in my class, which is extremely problematic, I, I think. Uh, and, and so I know my experience, I, I don't want to say that my, woe is me, my experience is the worst, but I'm saying in general, I think we have a lot of learning to do together. And so something that I feel really passionate about is, okay, how do we better facilitate these conversations and educate each other about uh, what others are going through and, and what's, what's appropriate and also not even, I don't want people even to think about it. I want people to fully understand why something is so offensive. And, 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 and I, think, I, th I think that would actually, our class loves each other. I think there's a lot of trust in our class, but I think it would help increase that even more. And I think that's, that's so important that some of the action that backs these priorities is to get in the room and to get our classmates in the room where decisions are made because that won't change if the cast of characters in the room where decisions are made doesn't change. Definitely. And, and you know, a lot of these conversations, the administration will never know about it because it's hard for someone to talk about these, this type of stuff. But how can you talk about these kind of one-off microaggressions, but just enough comments that make someone feel so horrible about themselves? That's, it's, it's a large structural issue, but if it happens to individuals, it's hard to understand the greater context of what's going on. So I think, I see my role is, is elevating these to, to the right people and so that they understand that it's, it, it's these little pockets of, of microaggressions and, and just really hurtful things are being said or purple actions are being said. And I think as a whole, our class is, is, um, is doing a great job. I just think there's always, there's so much areas of improvement and I just wanna highlight that. And I, yeah, I wanted to highlight that and, and see how can we push us forward. There's really only three black women in the entire 
class of 2023? Yeah. I think that's, I don't have a count in my head. I'd have to go through the roster, but I think that's pretty close to what we have. Yeah. We maybe have four or five. Maybe I'm forgetting some. It's, it's hard for me to do it because for our class, you know, we spent half the year on Zoom. So we don't even know a lot of our people in our cores. So there probably are people that I'm forgetting because we were not on campus and didn't meet a lot of our classmates, frankly. Like I meet yeah. people all the time who it's like, oh, you're in our class? You're kidding. That's amazing. Never <laughs> seen you before in my entire life. Um, but yeah, and, and I think African-American women are what, seven and a half percent, something like that of the population. It's like the country is 15% African-American and so about half of that number. And three, uh, three out of 220 is what is that 1.3% of our class? Yeah, it's, it's around, it's around that. It's like, yeah, just over 1%, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not okay. And, and I also, I will say this too, I think some of the issues around, because, you know, I, I want to also have elevate underrepresented voices in our community. But also, I don't, I think it's important to say it's not just about, you don't, because there's, there's you don't want to say you're one of the three black women, I need you to be this leadership position, because that's not fair to say that's, that's offensive. That's not right. okay. So it's about also, you need to make sure that we're recruiting and we're creating environments that just makes everyone, you have to make USC a place where these people want it. Everyone wants to come and um, it's more inclusive and it, you're thinking about uh, we just need to rethink about, you know, what's okay in our community. I, again, I, this sounds like I'm being really hard in my community. The reason why I'm saying this is because I think there's so much potential and that's why I wanted to run because I felt very excited about where we could take it. And I think even some of the things that my board has been talking about and not just my board, some of the other leaders in my class have been talking about, uh, what we want to do in terms of recruiting for, for Marshall for next year um, and in, in terms of leadership positions and just kind of org, uh, systematic change, it, it's, it's incredibly inspiring. And I, I can't take credit. It's, it's the, my classmates that are, that are spearheading these initiatives. And I, I just am hoping I can, you know, elevate these to, to the administration and say, look, already the students are thinking about this and are trying to change it. Can you help support us in doing this? Yeah. And I, it's clear, I think, to me and to most of the people listening, I think we'll take this in the spirit that it's meant, which is this is not an attack on USC or the administration or the culture. It's not meant as an attack. It's an aspiration that we're laying out, that we're gonna reach yeah. a point uh, of greater fairness and equity and inclusion. And you know, I don't mean to be too hard on the admissions office as we talk about this because the numbers maybe don't match the population but I think all of our classmates should remember that it would be very easy to say, oh, the problem is in admissions because they're not matching the percentage of the population. But that admissions number is downstream from 12 other kinds of gatekeeping and discrimination that keep people from getting the top SAT score that keeps them from getting into the top college, that keeps them from getting the top job, so that then when their application comes in, all the stuff doesn't quite look as fancy and gold-plated as the person next to them, right? Mm -hmm. this, this isn't everybody's experience, but for a lot of people, there are additional obstacles that sort of um, are thrown up along the way. 
and those emissions numbers are downstream from a bunch of other things that are happening in society, and we're about to go back into society, hopefully in leadership positions, and I want everybody to remember, like you have when you're in a senior position in a company, the ability to do things in your everyday work to push for change, just in little things that you do and giving people opportunities in a workplace. Anyway. No, I mean, I agree. And I, I also think it, it also is, up, or I don't know if it's upstream, but it's also how do you create a community where a diverse set of people want to go there because they feel like they'll, they'll be safe and, and, and they'll, they'll be able to be celebrated and, and, and elevated. You know, I think it's, it's both. It's, it's downstream, but it's also what's going on at, U, at USC Marshall that we can make it so that as a community, we're saying, this is a great place for you to be and uh, you're welcome here. Right. You know, I think about I think about a friend of mine who's a charter school teacher and how hard it was for his kids during the pandemic. And he teaches in an overwhelmingly Latino school where every household, if there's two parents there, they both work. And so the kids are literally alone. They got to make their own food. They got to completely take care of themselves. Some of them have jobs on the side because they got to help pay for things. I mean, these are things I, as a middle class white guy, did not have to do. Mm -hmm. and so that's what I mean when I talk about the gatekeeping that all the yeah. before admissions, and then we try to correct for that. And then <clears throat> certain, certain members of the Supreme Court tell us that we can't <laughs> correct for it. Um, not naming, no names, please. Not naming <laughs> any of the six names specifically that I have in mind. Um, that's a whole other conversation. But no, I, I mean, it's, this, is, this is good to, to get into the room, to prioritize it, to put it front and center, I think is all really, really important to the culture and the student experience here. And to, to drill that into the students, you know, we're going back into the real world and we're going to have opportunities to do the right thing or the lazy thing. Because a lot of choices, right? It's not choosing between the right thing and the wrong thing. It's often not that clear cut where it's like, choose good or evil. I choose evil. Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> what, what people... It, it, like there's a scene in Caddyshack where Judge Smales is like, Danny, you have a choice. You could stand for goodness or badness. Like, no, it's goodness or laziness no. more often than not. Nine times out of 10, it's just being lazy and going with the flow. And that doesn't change the flow. No. The, the choice no. is to realize that you have a choice to do something out of the ordinary to make things better. Yeah, and I think often it's hard to know what, when to change the status quo it's it's you, sometimes you're so stuck in it you don't even realize yeah. so i that's what i kind of see as my job too is illuminating illuminating some of the ways that we, we can push to be better i also want to say i don't think this is usd marshall specific i i was right. on a call right. yeah i mean i was on a call with um a zoom call yesterday with a bunch of other student new, newly elected student presidents of the other mba schools and it was a brief call, but we kind of briefly talked about some of the things that we were excited about or want to kind of campaigned on. And a lot of other schools talked about increasing their diversity and uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And, and, you know, what are the tangible steps that they can actually make that happen? I think, uh, would not say just the business community at large is the most inclusive community. So I think a lot of these MBA schools are just grappling with, okay, how do you make better and more uh, holistic uh, inclusive uh, leaders. And I want to circle back to the other really important, well, you made a number of really important points, but one of the important points you made was mental health. You know, I remember 
first semester, first year for me, I did consulting recruiting as well. It was not a fun time. Um, it took a major toll on my mental and physical health uh, because of the workload. And I, I just decided not to do some of the competitions that, that you did. And I, was, I went to law school before I was in the Army and before I was in business school. And I did mock trial, and I loved that stuff. And I wanted to do competition teams. And I just felt like I couldn't. And I never felt like anyone in the administration ever like looked at a calendar and said, let's just make a list of the things that are due and when they're due and when they compare to other major events, mm -hmm. right? Like there was, um, there was a case competition for real estate that was at the University of Austin, Texas. And the next day, the next Monday back was an accounting exam, I think. Yeah. Like, well, guess I'm not gonna do that competition. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It makes you make these choices where you're like, I'm here for school and I, everyone's at school for different reasons and I, I respect them. For me personally, like I also not here just to get a job. I came here to genuinely learn and take my classes seriously and try to soak up as, as much knowledge as possible. So it, it's kind of like a no, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I, I won't allow myself to like miss an exam or I hate missing class. Like I do take my classes seriously. But at the same time, if you want to be successful in something like consulting recruiting or just general recruiting in general, you also have to devote a ton of time and energy into that. And that's really taxing. Um, and I yeah. wish there was just more synergy between the two, not to use a business term, but I wish, you know, you can almost, the classes overlapped in, in ways that really helped you with, through you know this interview and recruiting process and just educating yourself for the next steps. Yeah, and I think you know there's some of this is inherent in the enterprise, right? There there is a mm -hmm. difference between prioritizing and sequencing, right? Prioritizing mm -hmm. is you choose what to do and what not to do, and sequencing is you choose what order to do things in. But you're not choosing to not do things. You're, you're still doing everything on the list. Prioritizing requires you to decide there are just certain things I'm not going to get to do. Uh, and so some of that is inherent, but I don't know that it has to be as extreme as it was for my experience or what it sounds like for your experience. And yeah, being in the room and advocating and just like explaining the end goal is for everybody to get a good job. And if the mm -hmm. time that the exams are, is making it hard for me to do that. It seems like we should just like move the exam two days. Yeah, exactly. It feels like an easy solution. Yeah, I, and I, I think that's part of business school is kind of your first point is people have to prioritize. I'm not saying, I don't think the school should bend over backwards so everyone can do everything. I think that's part of the process is that you kind of, you figure out what's really important to you and that gives you clarity on, on your long, your short and long-term goals. I know it helped me a lot understand where I wanted to go, but um, I agree. I think there's little changes like moving the exam two days, so much more helpful. I mean, it's just that that makes a world of difference. So, yeah, and and I don't mean to belabor the point. I think people get the point that we're, we're <laughs> why it's important for somebody to be in the room to raise these issues because if you're, you know, we live with it as students. The administration doesn't live with it every day because they're not students. They have a different perspective, and that's why it's important to have somebody advocating in the room, which is one of the things that an NGSA president can do. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's why I ran. <laughs> All right. 
So to finish with some lighter stuff than uh, discrimination, inequality, and mental health. <laughs> uh, we are actually going to make an awkward transition to a fun segment now. Uh, we're going to play a little game, and it's called Family Feud. Okay. All right. So are you familiar with Family Feud? Uh, yes, but maybe re-explain the rules just in case my interpretation is wrong. All right. So Family Feud's game show, two families come on. They try to compete to who, see who can guess the answers to survey questions where uh, someone from the Family Feud uh, production company went out to a shopping mall and asked 100 Americans what their response to a survey question was and the families try to uh, outcompete each other to guess what the Americans at the shopping mall said their answer to the survey question was. Now, you're a little bit of a ringer in this game because you have worked for department stores and shopping malls, right? Mm -hmm. So you are very well acquainted with the, uh, the full, let's call it, uh, beautiful diversity of the American mindset and the, uh, the various <laughs> things that Americans who go to a shopping mall might do or say in response to an otherwise ordinary survey question. <laughs> sure, yeah, you could say that. That's my expertise for sure. So I'm gonna read you a survey question. 100 Americans answered this question. You're gonna to try to guess what they said in response to this survey question. We have six answers on the board. You've got three strikes, so you can get a couple wrong guesses. But on the third wrong guess, I'm afraid that's, that's it. Game's over. Um, the survey question is, name something a person might keep in a cellar. Um, a TV. A TV. All right. Did Americans say you could keep a TV in a cellar? Nope, not on the list. It's not on the list. Wait, can I ask a clarifying question? Because sure, I feel like, sure. so my mind cellar could either be like a garage or it could be like a, a den where people, it's like under like a basement. Ah. How, so, so that's why I said TV because I wasn't sure if you meant garage or like a base or like a under a room where people hang out, but it's a basement. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So this is, this is cellars. This is not garages. So this, is, this, to is a, this is a cellar you hide in when a tornado comes. This is, this is, oh. a, yeah, this is a California okay. resident mistake. So I'm going to, um, unlike the SATs <laughs> when they ask a culturally biased question where they, you know, like ask working class people about what happens on a crew team in the analogy section, um, like name the parts of a sailboat they ask to like somebody who's never seen the ocean. Because um, they live in <laughs> Kansas or something. Um, so I'm going to give you your strike back. We're not going to count that against you. This is like a cellar you would hide in when the tornado comes. Like actual, oh, okay. like actual spooky cellar under a house. Okay, thank you. All right, so you got, you got all your strikes back. Let's start again from the top. Name something a person might keep in a cellar. Canned food. Canned food. Do we have canned food? Canned food is on the board. Number two answer, 23 Americans said canned food in a cellar. All right, now we're on the right track. We're going, we're going good here. 
<laughs> Thank God. Um, I would say water. So I think water falls under canned goods. Canned okay. goods, canned goods slash food Fair is enough. the answer. So, but I think I I would keep water in the cellar if I had a cellar. But I you need it to live, so I just I figured um, a flashlight. A flashlight that is definitely uh, something that might be in a cellar, as far as I'm concerned. All right, flashlight. I'm going to give it to you because three people said tools slash hooks. And okay. I say a flashlight is a tool. Yeah, I it was like under, I was going to name a bunch of tools. So I'm glad. I'm, I'll go a little more broad maybe. Um, okay. Yeah, I would remember, say. There's only six answers on the board. So they've kind of grouped some stuff. I, I, I yeah. Say. Um, Although the remaining uh, answers are sometimes frighteningly specific. All right, so that was incredibly unhelpful. I'll tell, I'll tell you that much. Um, I gave you your strike back, and I gave yeah. you tools for flashlight. Don't, don't you have, you have to, though. I, I'm president, though. You have to, so. Oh, is that, a, is that a presidential power? You can order game show hosts around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how it works. I'm pretty All sure. Right. That's part, you asked me what some of my powers are, and that is one of my powers, actually. So the veto um, over <laughs> faculty and administration you want is a veto over the host of the podcast. My issue is that I'm super competitive. And so uh, okay. that, you know, it's, it's, it's a great thing about me. And it's also not so great at times. Right. Um, I would say probably like a sleeping bag or some type of sleeping like, you know, like a, a sleep, something for sleeping arrangements with a sleeping bag. All right. sleep, something to sleep on, a cot, a sleeping bag, a bunk, something. What do we got? I'm afraid there's nothing in that, in that room. What? In that, in that, I think it's an unprepared seller, frankly. I think these Americans are in for a tough ride. But, you know, I guess, remember, we live in California where we have earthquakes, but not sellers. And the people who have sellers are in like, tornado zones so they don't have to worry about the big one hitting san francisco and i gotta be here for like 10 days by myself okay that's that's interesting that's giving me some context i grew up with earthquake drills never ever experienced tornado in my life like i, I gotta think like um dorothy what yeah. what, is, what does she have some of these things by the way i will give you a little bit of a clue um some of these things might be cold weather state specific too I was going to say like a warm jacket or yeah, like a, something like a layer or something to keep you warm underneath uh, there. So you or a heater. Close, there we go. Heater. <laughs> there we go. People are going to listen to this and be like, she did not, she was not winning this game. And that's okay. You can't win them all. <laughs> well, uh, no one has won it yet, by the way. You're the fourth person to play. No one has won. You have uh, one strike and it was for sleeping area which was a pretty damn good guess to be honest you got three answers left on the board uh three people said tools or hooks two people said furnace and 23 people said canned goods or food you got three answers left on the board including the number one answer number one that's throwing me out because i would think canned goods would be the top one uh, maybe um i will i will say I've, I've given like the very clear impression that cellar is under a person's house where they're hiding from a tornado. And certainly that is true, but there are other kinds of cellars. I just wanted to, um, to exclude garages from the analysis because I felt like that would sort of throw you off a little bit. 
I everything I'm thinking of is what you would need possibly in a in a in emergency. Well, you might need this in an emergency. The number one answer, that's for sure, and the number six answer for that matter. Your phone. All right. Let's see if phone is here. You need to communicate. I think Dang! How are people going to communicate? <laughs> I think you're assuming that you would just bring your phone down to the cellar with you. Oh. Yeah, I guess. I, I, again, I will, I will say, to me, that's actually, I was like, it's in the cellar. But yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, All right. So you got well, only the last strike left. So you can't miss any more. I know. That's, um, that's, that's really awesome for me. This is like, what's the number one answer. It's a, it's a fun thing. Like you would definitely want to have some of this around if you were actually hiding out in a cellar after a disaster, you'd want to uh, like, enjoy yourself a little bit, but there are like specialized sellers for this number one item. Is it not like a handle of vodka or alcohol? It is wine. Oh, there I'll, we go. I'll give that to you. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna say alcohol, it was alcohol. Yeah, that was my answer. It was alcohol. I was yeah. just giving an example of, of of an alcohol, which is vodka. The listeners are are tuning in, and they're just like, "What the hell is this? This is like when Vladimir Putin plays ice hockey against the Russian team. <laughs> like, what is going on? Do not compare me to Putin. Oh my god, <laughs> that is offensive. That's a only war criminal. His, only his hockey playing, nothing else. Oh God. Um, uh, all right, so we got we got some we got the one and two. All right, we need the three and four. Is what you're telling me? That's the, those are the ones that are left. Uh, three and six. Oh, okay. So six is going to be like super random. Yeah, because it's, so, it's less than three people voted for it. Right. So wine was fifty four people. Canned goods were twenty three people. So that's seventy seven of uh, the one hundred survey responses. And I'm now realizing why does this survey not add up to a hundred? I guess they asked, I didn't actually count the responses up before the show. I guess they asked 87 people what they would keep in a cellar. This does not add up to 100. No, because you know what it is? The balance, what, the balance 13 people? They're probably ones that each had individual 13 answers. Probably, yeah. Probably, yeah. Um, all right. So the number six answer is definitely not a California it's like the least California answer possible. What's the opposite of a California thing? Like not organic, let me think. Maybe in like the rural counties of California, they would keep this in a cellar. They're not keeping this in any cellars in San Francisco. <laughs> what, what, what would, what's really rural? What's a, is it, I'm not gonna ask for hints. <laughs> have i you think i've heard of it oh you've heard of it <laughs> is it bad oh you've heard of it oh you've heard of both of these things one of them is bad the number six answer is it bad depends on your opinion i think that you would say is it a condom it is it's not a condom i'm not <laughs> that was a great guess though I'm so glad that was your guess. That was <laughs> this is good people content. are bored. They they got they gotta keep entertained. This is good TV, content. No, <laughs> this is excellent content. All right, 
I'm sorry to say that that was that was three strikes. Mm. Okay, right. what were they? So the number six answer, which is the very non-California answer to having a seller, is a gun. Oh, that's whoa. Okay, that's kind of uh, I don't yeah. <laughs> you you could say it that it's a little like oh that's that's a little uncomfortable. No, I mean, what's, what's the word? Whatever. Yeah, I guess it's a little uncomfortable. I just, yeah, that's sad. It gets, it gets better. That's morbid. That's the word. That's very morbid. Oh, it gets, it, <laughs> we are not even all the way down this street. So two people said gun. That is the number six answer. The number three answer, which was four separate people, four separate people in an ordinary American shopping mall when asked by a perfect stranger what they would keep in a cellar. What they said was dead bodies. Oh, oh my God. I would have never gone there. And I want to be clear. As I have said before, when we get crazy answers in the Family Feud survey, this isn't they asked for a bunch of things you might keep in a cellar and eventually they said dead bodies. They were asked for one thing. <laughs> what is something a person might keep in a cellar? And immediately they were like, dead bodies. Oh my God. You know what? I get it. I get yeah. it. That is, if, if there was a place in your house you would keep the dead body, it would be the cellar. Maybe the attic, but most likely the cellar. So mm. I get it. <laughs> All right. So what's next for you after business school? What's the, what's the future hold? Yeah, the future holds um, hopefully a position in strategy, I'm hoping, for a company that I feel really passionate about because they're mission-driven or they have really strong social values. Um, it's not obvious that that type of work is important to me. So hoping to kind of blend my passion of, of thinking long-term vision, kind of, you know, um, thinking really holistically about how, how to operationalize a business, but also how do you make, how do you help a business that's already doing good in the world? I don't want to do, I already worked for a big company that, I, I mean, no hate on Macy's. I love Macy's, but at the end of the day, it was all about getting people to buy stuff with money. They were with, get people to buy stuff so they can throw it out and then rebuy it again. And there was, I felt like there was no greater purpose. And so that's, that's the goal. And purpose is something that I know is important to you. And we're going to, we're going to wrap the show pretty soon. We've gone well over the normal hour that we're supposed to do. So I, uh, we do have to wrap it up a little bit, but I know that you wanted to close us out with, I asked you if you had a clip you wanted to close the show out because <laughs> we've, uh, I've fallen in love with the soundboard and playing movie clips because we've done a couple movie episodes. And uh, so you've, you've got a clip from Legally Blonde and I want to have you explain why you thought this clip was so meaningful to you. Yeah, I think it's because, and you know what? Some people might call it cliche, but Elle Woods in that movie was doubted throughout the whole time she was at school. And I think when I was uh, in fourth grade watching that movie, I was just, it was very inspiring to watch someone so true themselves prove to so many people how wrong they were. And I think what she says in the clip you'll hear is being true to yourself and be true to your convictions and your values. And that's something that, drives uh, how I want to run as MGSA president, but also just as a leader in this world. All right. Olivia Glick, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to go to
go to the end of the show with Elle Woods, and I wish you the best <laughs> of luck in all your efforts as, as MGSA president and in everything else going forward. All right, Elle Woods, everybody. Self. 